Thank you for this wonderful meal, for the great fellowship. Thank you for Pastor and his faithfulness to this ministry over these years. And Lord, this lighthouse, this important lighthouse in this area. So Father, we pray you handle a continued blessing upon the ministry. Now, Father, as we have a little bit of fun this afternoon and talk about dragons, talk about your word, talk about these marvelous creatures, but you get the glory for God. It's your mind that invented them and conceived of them, and you deserve the glory for your creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Dragons. Well, everyone has heard of dragons. There's stories of dragons in every single culture, but are they real? Are dragons historical, or are they mythical? I had a young lady on the front row, and she said, I said, what's the difference between dinosaurs and dragons? She said, dinosaurs are real and dragons are fake. Hmm. We're going to talk about that just a little bit here. Dragons. When I talk about dragons, we're going to say talk about dragons around the world, dragons in the Bible, dragon descriptions that seem, seem biologically problematic. And I'm going to give you a couple of dragon histories, stories of dragons. Now, dragons, as I'm going to talk about them, are a little bit different than maybe Hollywood presents them or maybe some of your favorite dragon books present them. Maybe some of you guys have heard of some of these things, how to train your dragon. I'm not talking about that kind of dragon or Pete's dragon. I'm not talking about a big fuzzy green dragon or maybe the last dragon, right, or some of these different ones. Uh, no, we're talking about dragon as a monster reptile. Monster reptile. It's not a real scientific word. It's not talking about a species of animal, but rather uh, a general term. Now, the word dinosaur was invented by Richard Owen in 1841. He used it in writing for the first time in print the year after. But it means terrible lizard. It's Greek for terrible lizard. But folks, before that, before 1841, what did scientists call the skulls, the skeletons of these big creatures they were digging up? Hmm? Dragons was the word. There was no word dinosaur before 1841, but they had already dug up Megalosaurus and Iguanodon, and they had some pterodactyls and different things. And so the word dragon is the word you'll see in the Bible. When the Bible was translated, it was 1611. It was 230 years before they came up with the word dragon, a dinosaur. So people say, well, how come dinosaurs aren't mentioned in the Bible? They didn't have the word even in those days. But they had dragon. And when we say dragon, think monster reptile. It's not quite species specific. There were dragons of the air, dragons of the land, dragons of the sea. It's just these big ginormous monster reptiles. Now here's Carl Schuker in his book, Dragons and Natural History, and he says, in the world, by the way, he's not a Christian as far as I know, in the world of fantastic animals, fantastic means they're not real, the dragon is unique. No other imaginary creature has appeared in such a rich variety of forms. It's as though there once was a whole family of different dragon species that really existed before they mysteriously became extinct. Indeed, as recently as the 17th century, scholars wrote of dragons as though they were scientific fact. Their anatomy and natural history being recorded in painstaking detail. Now, this is an evolutionist, and he's saying, boy, they're right. That's great. Thank you. That helps. Boy, they're writing about these dragons like as if they were real animals. 
maybe because they were. Could that be? Okay, let's talk about dragons around the world. I want to just show you that the stories of dragons is not something that was invented by the Europeans or maybe uh, some people in China. Of course, dragons are huge in China, but dragons are all over the world. Here is the World Book Encyclopedia. It says, Dragon was the name given to the most terrible monsters of the ancient world. Dragons did not really exist, <coughs> but most people believed in them. The dragons of legend are strangely like actual creatures that lived in the past. They are much like the great reptiles which inhabited the earth long before man is supposed to have appeared on the earth. Every country had them in its mythology. Now, this is the World Book Encyclopedia, and you right away are seeing evolution there. You see it kind of hidden underneath the surface? Way back in time, before man evolved, right? But they admit that they're in all these different countries. How come they're all inventing stories about dragons, if there wasn't any real dragons. Here's the Middle East. The Jewish poet Israel Nahara in 1680 told of the Babylonians who worshipped a dragon. The prophet Daniel killed the dragon by baking pitch, fat, and hair to make cakes. Of course, the dragon breathes fire, and so he, when he got that fat and stuff, he burst asunder upon consuming them. Babylon. Here's the walls of Babylon. It's in a museum in Germany. But you see dragons with forked tongues and scales painted on the walls of Babylon from 600 B.C. So dragons in the Middle East. Dragons in the Far East, in China. China's oldest known dragon depictions are the ancient Shishuapo, maybe, cemetery. goes back thousands of years. The similarity of modern dragon renditions shows a dragon concept did not slowly developed, but was probably modeled after real creatures. So if someone has made up a kind of animal, Typically, that will change and morph through time. But what we see is the dragon form has been pretty consistent since way back thousands of years ago, even to today. That basic form of a dragon has been very consistent in Chinese history. And of course, we have the 12 Chinese zodiac signs, depending on what year you were born. You might be a pig or a rat or a cow or a tiger. Well, all these are real animals. How about the dragon? I think they knew real dragons. In 1611, the Chinese emperor appointed the post of royal dragon feeder. Historical accounts tell of Chinese families raising dragons to use their blood for medicines and highly prizing their eggs. The great emperor Yu used them to pull his chariot. So dragons, they have all these histories and these stories, these uh, very realistic accounts of dragons. Here's some uh, dinosaur eggs from China. You see them fossilized there, kind of cracked a little bit, but fossilized eggs. The interpretation of dinosaurs as dragons goes back more than 2,000 years in Chinese culture. They were regarded as sacred and as a symbol of power. So the Chinese didn't have like one idea of a dragon and one idea of a dinosaur. When they were digging up dinosaur skeletons or dinosaur eggs, they called them fossilized dragons or fossilized dinosaur or dragon eggs. And unfortunately, they destroyed a lot of fossils because they would grind them up into powder and drink them in their teas because dragon bones are part of some of their, their, their kind of homeopathic potions and stuff like this. And still today, they have to stop these kind of old school Chinese guys from going into the paleontological communities and destroying Chinese because it's worth a mint on the kind of holistic, you know, markets. Uh, yeah, it's a problem. It's a major issue.
Here's Marco Polo. He was one of the first Westerners to travel extensively through China. He wrote a book called The Travels of Marco Polo. He talks about reptiles, which in the forepart have two short legs with three claws. The jaws are wide enough to swallow a man. The teeth are large and sharp. Their whole appearance is so formidable that neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. Dragons, he talks about in his book that were known in China. Here is a Chinese statue. It's a bronze statue. I was able to purchase this, believe it or not, on the antiquities market in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, but it's very old. It cost me a fair amount of money. And uh, it's, re it's authentic. You can see this scale-like pattern. You see the tail. You've got some spikes on the tail. You've got a really long neck, a beak. And it looks like a bird from the beak. Of course, it has the three toes, which is like a bird. But no bird has a tail like that or a body like that, much less a, a horn coming out. And yet it looks very much like an oviraptor. So we can not only see that they talked about dragons, we actually recognize the species of dragon, and it matches up real well with known kinds of dinosaurs. Here's another one. This is a jade from the Shang Dynasty, way before we were digging up dinosaur fossils, 1766 BC. Again, scale-like patterns, very similar dermal frill and head crest as the Sarlophus dinosaur. How about Europe? Lots of dragon stories from Europe. It was quite common on maps at that time, when you got to the edge of the map where they didn't know what was out there, they would put, here be dragons. If you sail there, watch out. You don't know what you're getting into, right? So there were these dragons in the sea. By the way, can you see this? Kind of hard to see. See this red thing here? See that sea serpent? Do you see the boat? Which is larger, the boat or the sea serpent? The sea serpent, right? Now, that may be a little exaggerated, but there were some big ones that they had stories of. Beowulf, some of you guys maybe in British literature had to read Beowulf, but Beowulf went out and killed dragons. In fact, he died killing a winged dragon in 583. Uh, St. George, lots of paintings and stories of St. George killing the dragon. Here's one that's painted in 1450 AD. Again, 400 years roughly before we're digging up dinosaurs. And yet they've got something that looks an awful lot like a dinosaur there. How did they know what they looked like? Because people knew about dragons. They're real animals. They just didn't have a word for dinosaur yet, but these are some dinosaurs that were still left. How about America? Well, the American Indians had a creature called Unktehi. Looks like an ox, but much larger. And uh, here's an Indian agent named Schoolcraft, Henry Schoolcraft. And he, in his book, ha drew pictures, and, and he got these from the Indians. Uh, birch bark, and they, they were very, it's an immense reptile, has these notches on the back, much like an Ankylosaurus. So we believe in the swamps of the Midwest of America, there were still maybe some Ankylosauruses that were known to the Indians. Here is a Cree painting, the Cree Indians, and they have, see this, Unteki? Look at the horns and the spikes. Okay, this is up in Ontario, Canada, Lake Salt Superior Provincial Park, and you can see a canoe. See the canoe and the guys compared to the dinosaur? Big, really big dragon. Um, how about Africa? During the Roman Empire, there was a Christian author named St. John of Damascus. So he's living in Syria, St. John of Damascus. And about 700 AD, this Eastern monk writes a history. And in it, he talks about dragons. And he goes out of his way to say dragons are not mythical, they're not magical, they're not supernatural, they're just real animals. 
And to prove his point, he quotes a Roman historian. Now, we don't have that guy's book anymore, but he quotes a Roman historian and who describes how the Roman army was fighting against Carthage when all of a sudden they encountered a dragon behind the wall and they killed the thing and they sent this thing, they sent the dragon's skin, the hide, back to the Roman Senate. And the Senate had it measured and, you know, it's very unlikely that a Christian author would make up a story, much less one that involved a Roman army and the Senate. I mean, you didn't make up stuff about those guys. <laughs> that would not have been smart in those days. So very likely a very real story about a dragon that was known in the time of the Romans. So dragons have lived with men. That's my argument to you. Dragons lived with men. So what happened to them? How come we don't have dragons running around in our backyard? How come we don't have dragons, you know, maybe showing up once in a while at the town park so I can go pet him? Well, they have by and large gone extinct. Maybe we might still have some in remote places. But by and large, people have killed them off. Now, we have dragons mentioned in the Bible, and I want to just give you a few of these verses. But we know that man lived alongside all the creatures because in Genesis 1.25, God makes all these reptiles, the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind and God saw it was good. Now this is day six. What day does God make man? Day six. From the first day that man walks this earth, man is walking alongside dinosaurs slash dragons. That's Bible. Not millions of years before man evolved. But at the same time, we had swimming dragons. We call them plesiosaurs. We have walking dragons that we call dinosaurs. Remember, dragon is more of a general term. We have flying dragons that we call pterosaurs. But they're all just various dragons. So the word dragon in the Bible, think of as a general world word for reptilian monster. Question, were the dragons on the ark? Yes. <laughs> Who said that? High five. Way to go. Gold star for this young man. You got it right. Were there swimming dragons on the ark? No. Why not? They live in the water. Everything that has the breath of air in its nose is on the ark. But no need to have a goldfish bowl for the goldfish. They're just swimming around out there, right? So the swimming dragons get to go around and check out the whole world. They go on tour. They go to places they've never been able to go before, right? But the flying dragons and the walking dragons, they would have been on the ark. Two of every kind of dinosaur and pterosaur came off the ark. God commanded that the earth be replenished. The animals spread out in obedience to God. But we talked about this morning. The people congregate. They build the Tower of Babel. So God forces them to spread out by confusing their language. As people groups travel outward, they begin to encounter populations of these great reptiles. Remember, this is maybe generations after the flood. Maybe Shem, Ham, and Japheth are gone, so their great-grandchildren have never seen a dragon before. And all of a sudden, Daddy comes home and says, Boys and girls, I was just out hunting, and there was this big old nasty reptile. And the kids are saying, Woo! And his wife was saying, really? Uh, yes, they're real. And so they get a whole bunch of people, and they go out there, and, and maybe it even kills one of them, but they eventually get rid of the thing, they kill it, and oh, the dragon's dead, right? 
And that's what's happening to these dragons as people are spreading them out. Spreading out, they're killing them off. They're killing off the great reptiles. Now, the word dragon appears numerous times, I think like a dozen or maybe even two dozen times in the King James Version. It's translated well before dinosaurs invented. The original Hebrew word is tanin. Tanin. That's the Hebrew word for dragon right there. Both land and marine monsters, so it's not a specific type of animal. By the way, if you go to Israel today, they speak Hebrew, but it's kind of a new, it's a modern Hebrew. The word tanin means crocodile. That's what it means now. But that's not what it meant way, way back. The, the language has changed, okay? A modern Hebrew is, is, is kind of manufactured to a large degree. They've tried to rebirth a dead language. Okay. Psalm 74. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces. Lots of places the Bible's talking about dragons. Nehemiah. He comes back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a wasteland. The Babylonians have destroyed the city. He's all brokenhearted. He wants to rebuild the city. And he's slipping around at night, kind of checking things out on his horse. And he comes to this place by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, under the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. Well, what's a dragon well? We really don't know for sure. But here's a possibility. Maybe... After the Israelites abandoned the broken down city, a dragon said, hey, this would be a nice place to slither into and live here. I'd like to live right here by this little what spot here by this well. And we know that in the, in, in the town of Jerusalem today, there is a particular well, an ancient well, that is known as the dragon well. Still today, Warren Shaft or the dragon well is still there. So maybe they killed the dragon and they were able to, you know, build it a well and, and, and get the water out of there. Don't know. It's just a possibility. But there was a place that was called the dragon well. Psalm 91, 13. You shall tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion, and the dragon shall you trample under feet. Now, if the dragon is just make-believe, how are you going to step on him? How do you step on a make-believe animal? No, no, no. The lion is very real, and the adder snake is very real. Would you like to step on a snake called an adder that bites? No, probably not. I know my wife wouldn't. Probably most of you ladies wouldn't. None of us would probably like to step on a lion. Can you imagine a lion is sleeping, and you're like, oh, good, let me step on him. <gasps> Big mistake. Well, the dragon would have been just as bad. How would you like to have walked up to one of these guys who was sleeping and step on him? Very bad idea, right? So the Bible is saying in the power of God, you're going to overcome these terrible creatures. Notice, stepping in triumph upon a foe that was just vanquished is a tradition that is thousands of years old. We, we see it in Joshua 10, 24. And a lot of times you see imagery of them standing on top of, you see its blo bloody head and, and uh, even... Uh, Jesus himself, remember the prophecy, you will hurt his heel, but he will stamp your head, remember? And the, sta the, sta the stomping and standing on one's foe was a, a sign of victory. Jeremiah 51, 34, the king of Babylon hath devoured me. He crushed me. He made me an empty vessel. He swallowed me up like a dragon. 
Well, there's something unique about the way the dragon swallows that Jeremiah was mourning the loss of his country. His country had gotten swallowed up like a dragon. Well, how does a dragon swallow? Gulp, right? The king of Babylon came and just gulped up all of Israel. And this helps, this imagery helps us think about the way carnivorous reptiles will just gulp their prey down. Uh, really, they'll squash it a little bit, but it might not be totally dead. They're just going to let it get digested. Isaiah 30, verse 6, The burden of the beasts of the south into the land of trouble and anguish, for whence come the young and old lion, the viper, and the fiery flying serpent. So even flying great reptiles, flying dragons, are mentioned in the Bible. So that's just a little bit of a survey of some of the different dragon mentionings in the Bible. Okay. Dragon descriptions that seem biologically problematic. When I go to places and I say to secular audiences, well, I believe in dragons, they'll say, oh, come on. Dave, really? You believe in dragons? Come on. I say, well, what's the matter with believing in dragons? They'll say things like this. Well, there's biological problems with dragons. For example, how could bulky dragons with tiny little wings ever fly? It doesn't make any sense. And, and for example, look at this. This is very common in dragon stories. Notice, you see these upright wings? They're never like laying back like a bird's wings. They're always sticking straight up with dragons. And they're really little. I mean, there's no way this big creature is going to get carried with a tiny wing like that. It makes no sense biologically. Right? I mean, basic aerodynamics. You cannot have that happen. This is a dragon in, in uh, St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, uh, done in the 11th century. Uh, here's, uh, here's a book by uh, Peter Wellenhofer, the Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs. Pterosaurs, of course, pterodactyls, the flying reptiles. And here's what Peter Wellenhofer, world expert on pterosaurs, said. Quote, a flying dragon depiction is shown in Athanasius Kircher's 1678 book, Mundus Septuagint. So Dr. Wellenhofer is suggesting that in 1678, long before we're digging up dinosaurs and pterosaurs, this book by Athanasius Kircher is showing a picture of a flying reptile. And Wellenhofer suggests it may have been based on fossils. What? We're not digging them up that early. Why does Dr. Wellenhofer suggest it's based on fossils? Because he says the erect wingtips, rather than tucked down to the body like a bird, are very pterosaur-like. And I'm going to show you this picture in just a minute. Here's his point. The pterosaurs had these enormous wings. But when they pulled their arms in like this, their wings were kind of elastic, more like a bat, no feathers, like a bat. They came tight to the body, and they could walk around on all fours, except for the tips of their wings, which were a fingertip, which they would put upright. So think about a W. Boop, 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 boop. Their wingtips are up on both sides. Their hands are down here. Their finger, the wingtip is standing up. And that's why you have just this tiny little part of the wing sticking up straight up. Okay, and Dr. Wellenhofer says this book of ancient dragons is so good. He says it must have been based on fossils. See that? You look at it and say there's no way those tiny little wings could make this big creature fly. That's just the wing tip that it's holding up so it doesn't drag along the ground. But once it spreads out its forearm, the whole rest of the wing, which is hanging back on its body, becomes clear. 
and these things had the wingspan of a fighter jet. You're talking like a 20 to 25 foot wingspan. And they were tall as a giraffe. Huge creatures. That's why the wings look so tiny. Okay, number two. Why do dragon drawings have weird bumps and spikes and sometimes what look like ears on them? Dinosaurs don't have ears. They don't have outside ears. Dinosaurs have a flat spot right there where there's a hearing spot. They have an inner ear like we do, but no reptiles have outer ears like mammals do. Um, and so, and then these spikes. Well, I mean, all these dragon pictures have lots of spikes. So look at this one. This is a dragon depiction. I took this picture in a museum in Peru. But look at this dragon. All these kind of spikes and look like ears there and all these spikes going down the back. And people say, well, we have dinosaur fossils, but dinosaurs don't have all those spikes. Well, I mean, dragons can't be real. Um, here's another one. This is a, a tapestry from France. And look at this dragon. Claws, scales, but look at all the spikes going on its back. And look here, what looks like ears and a spiky head. Look at this nobles and stuff. And this tapestry was done in the 17th century before we're digging up dinosaurs. It's a dragon. And they say, well, but the, how can that be real? Look at all the, the spikes and horns. And then they found this. In 2015, National Geographic, after two centuries of paleontological harvest, the evidence seems stranger than any fable and continues to get stranger. What's the article about? It's about a dinosaur that looks just like a dragon. Now, I have a, the original is only one, the original is in a museum, but I have a museum quality replica of this thing that was done by a European company that does these for museums. This is the skull they dug up of a dinosaur that was named Dracorex hogwartsia. Dracorex hogwartsia. Now, Dracorex is Latin for dragon, and Hogwarts is named after the Harry Potter books where they had the Hogwarts School of Magic, right? And so they're like, this is like a, you know, the dragons of the stories. This got these horns and stuff, and that would look like ears, wouldn't it? If you saw this thing from a distance, you might draw something like an ear on it. And look at all these spikes and bumps. Looks just like a dragon. So yeah, just because we haven't dug something up yet doesn't mean it never existed. Here's a fossil that was just found a couple of years ago in Britain called Skeletosaurus. Notice the spikes, the horns. So we're finding more and more of these spiped, spiked, bumped dinosaurs out there. Okay, so we talked about the wings, talked about the spikes. Number three, how could dragons breathe fire? Dino Dave, don't tell me you really believe in fire-breathing dragons. That's impossible, right? They'd burn up. And yet all these different cultures talk about dragons and say they breathe fire. So let's talk about that for just a minute. Let's start with the Bible. Job chapter 41 talks about a creature called Leviathan. And Leviathan, the Bible says, can you bring him out with a hook? Can you go fishing for Leviathan and catch him on a fish hook? Out of his mouth goes burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goes smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. Now look carefully, my friends. The Bible's not saying it's like a cloud of smoke. 
Then you might think, well, maybe on a really cold day, Job was looking out and he was going, and some, some vapors were coming out and it looked like, you know, smoke. No, it's saying a flame of fire goes out of his mouth and he kindles coals of fire. He makes fires, go, and like maybe some leaves will burn. Someone's given a good rendition of a Leviathan back there. Um, the, Bible, the Bible is pretty clear. They were fire-breathing creatures. And that settles it as far as I'm concerned. Biblical evidence. But not only do we have the biblical evidence, but there's a lot of historical evidence from many different cultures. Now, my friends, if they were just making this up, why did they all pick the dragon? You're talking cultures that did not interact. They're all talking about fire-breathing dragons. Why doesn't one have a fire-breathing dog, another one have a fire-breathing duck, and one has a fire-breathing mosquito? <laughs> no, there really were fire-breathing dragons. And then we have some biological evidence. How many of you guys have heard of the bombardier beetle? Okay, about half the crowd. You've got a pretty well-educated crowd here, Pastor John. So there's a beetle. And his back end, his abdomen, has two chambers. One has hydrogen peroxide, one has hydroquinine. When he combines these two chemicals together, poof, you have an explosion at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a little miniature fire, not breathing, but fire emitting beetle. Look at this picture. Look at the smoke. This is a pretty wild chemical reaction from a beetle. And he can aim it backwards, he can aim it under his stomach, he can aim it all the way up over his back. He's got like a squirt gun that God gave him. We can aim it all these different directions. There was a child not long ago who had one of these land on his neck, and he went to swat it, and he got a beetle burn. They're pretty small, but they get quite the zap. Bombardier beetle. Well, we also have a little bit of paleontological evidence. That is... There is a type of dinosaur that had a very interesting head crest. Now, my wife and I had the chance to go to the American Museum of Natural History just a couple months ago, about a few months ago now. And I've been doing this talk for a long time, and she's seen this. But she got there, and she said, wow, that really is a big head crest. It's huge. You, you, you know, this doesn't do it justice. Why this big head crest? The scientists don't know. They think maybe it was an echo chamber, made a noise or something. And this is just a theory, okay, just a theory. Maybe there were some chambers up in there just like the beetle had, and by pushing oxygen through it, he could combine the chemicals, and he could breathe fire. Just a theory, maybe, possibly, but very possibly. Okay, so we've talked about dragons around the world, dragons in the Bible, dragon descriptions that seem problematic. Let me end by giving you two dragon stories. If you were to tell me, well, Dino Dave, which stories do you think are real? Because some of them are clearly very exaggerated, uh, maybe never happened, but maybe they were based on something. But, you know, kind of like uh, Pastor John's fish stories. Every time he tells them, they get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, right? Pretty soon he caught a fish the size of a telephone pole. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But some of them are exaggerated. But let me give you a couple that I think are pretty reasonable, pretty plausible, okay? So the first one I want to tell you about is about a guy by the name of Ulysses Aldrovandus. Now, just to set this up, Ulysses Aldrovandus is a scientist. Some people regard him as the father of natural history. 
He was working at Bologna University, the first university in the world. He had the first museum in the world. He went around and collected um, things like monitor lizards and iguanas and things like this, stuffed them, and he had all these exhibits in his museum. And also he had a dragon stuffed in his museum. Now, I've been to the University of Bologna. I went there, and they still have his iguana. They still have his monitor lizard. And I asked the staff, well, where's the dragon? Oh, they said it was lost. I said, do, do you have anything, records or stuff? Oh, yeah, we got all the records. In fact, we have a drawing he had made. I said, okay, can I get that? And so in his book, this is his book, Natural History of Serpents and Dragons, he has a drawing of the dragon, and he tells exactly what happened. He writes it out in great detail. He says, on May 13th, 1572, remember, this is way before the digging up dinosaur bones, 1800s. 1572, the farmer Batista found the dragon on the lane and killed it. He gives it to Aldrovandis, the scientist, who mounts it and stuffs it, puts it in his museum. 1572 very carefully records exactly everything about this thing. And he had this watercolor painting, which they gave me, made of the dragon. Now it's kind of a pitiful looking little thing, right? Not real fierce looking, but it apparently was, you know, maybe mutated or, you know, I don't know, whatever, but was a dragon that was around at the time of Ulysses Aldrovandus. Okay, let me tell you another story. Ancient France, you see here the picture of the town of Poitiers. I'm not French, maybe they say it slightly different. Huh? Oh, Poitiers. Poitiers? Poitiers. Thankfully, we've got someone here that can straighten me out. Poitiers. I'll try to remember that for next time. Poitiers, France. And you see here a river running through this beautiful town of Poitiers. And there was supposedly a dragon that lived in the river. And this dragon was a mean old bugger. And at nighttime, when everybody was sleeping, he'd come crawling up out of the river, and he would steal sheep, goats. He would terrorize the local villages. And he would supposedly even take children that might be out meandering around in the night and eat them. Ouch. Well, this became a bit of a problem for the people of Poitiers. They said, we got to do something about this thing. We got to go down to the Clane River and we got to hunt this monster. And we got to find him and we got to kill him. Uh, but there was a problem. Nobody wanted to go down to the Clane River and fight the dragon. Ah. So then one day, the dragon came up through the sewer pipes into the abbey and attacked one of the nuns at this church, the abbey in Poitiers, France, built in 500 A.D. That's how old the story is of this dragon. And that was it. They said, we have got to do something about this dragon. So finally, they convinced a prisoner, someone in the jail... And they said, if you will go and fight the dragon, we'll let you go free. Mm. He said, all right. 
So he put on all his armor. He, he, he got his, his leather armor and he got his skin shield and he got himself a big old sword. Ooh, looking for the dragon. He goes on down the Clane River and he goes down there. And the people are like, oh, hope he finds it. Please, God, let him kill this nasty thing. And they all wish him well. And he goes down to the river and he finds the dragon. And there's a huge fight. And he ends up killing the dragon. And he comes back and he tells them, I killed the dragon, and he broke my, my shield, and I about died from his stinky breath, and he bit me here, but he was okay. And they went down the river, and they got the dragon, and here is a parade about 520 A.D. And again, I think they've exaggerated a bit. But that dragon story has maintained pretty much consistency all through the years. And in 1600s, again, before we're digging up any pterosaurs or dinosaurs, there is a commissioning by the abbey to commemorate the slaying of the monster La Grande Goulet. The story was recorded by Sir John Lauder, a man from Scotland who lived in Poitiers in the 1600s. And here is the carving they made of this thing. Now, I want you to look at this carving quite carefully for just a minute. Because just below the carving, I put the best reconstruction by modern paleontologists of a dimorphodon pterosaur. Notice head crest. Notice widening at the end of the tail. Notice these stripes, the, the ribbed body. Notice the claws. Notice on the wingtips, the fingers, and these bat-like wings with the stiffening fibers. Now, you think that's all an accident? This still survives today. And here is a picture of it. You can go to Poitier today and you can see this carving. And it matches a Ramphorhynchoid pterosaur almost perfectly. How did the people in the 1600s know to carve that? Maybe because they really killed one. Okay, let's conclude. Here is an atheist. Carl Sagan. Some of you guys maybe remember him. He had this show Cosmos back when I was a kid. And he was asked about dragons. And he said this. He's an atheist. The pervasiveness of dragon myths in the folk legends of many cultures is probably no accident. Huh? How did he describe it then if this is something that's in all these different cultures? Carl Sagan tried to account for the spread and consistency of dragon legends by saying they are Fossil memories, fossil memories at the time of the dinosaurs come down through us through a general mammalian memory inherited from the early mammals, our ancestors who had to compete with the great predatory lizards. Whoa, wait a minute. What the atheist Carl Sagan is saying is that our great, 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 back a thousand million times ancestors who were squirrels maybe at that time and saw dinosaurs, remembered them, and we inherited this over millions of years, a memory of dragons. Huh? Do you remember anything your parents experienced? You don't inherit memories from your parents. Fossil memories are like nothing. It doesn't exist. He made this up. That's how atheists deal with dragons. It makes no sense. It's easier just to believe that people really encountered great reptiles. Well, how should Christians respond 
to dragons. Number one, stand up against the evolutionary propaganda to reclaim the great reptiles for the glory of our creator. Amen? Number two, use people's natural fascination with dragons as a segue into a conversation about the Bible. The Bible talks about dragons. Don't be embarrassed of it. This is great. This is great news. It shows the credibility of God's word. Number three, give God the praise he deserves for his wonderful works. Psalm 148 verse 7 says it so well. Praise the Lord from the earth, you dragons and all deeps. So I've got a lot more on dragons in my book, Chronicles of Dinosauria. Uh, or feel free to grab one of the softcover books. These, by the way, these softcover books are new. Just came out. They're great for family devotions, great for vacation Bible schools, great for Sunday schools. My wife had a chance to share some stories with the children this morning, but I think you'll enjoy them. So feel free to come on up, avail yourself of some of the literature, or go to my website, www.genesispark.com, genesispark.com. You can get on our newsletter. Let's close in a word of prayer, and I'll turn it back over to Pastor to wrap things up for today. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truths in it. Truths that may at first glimpse seem to be unscientific are found out to be exactly right on. Why? Because it's your word. We're thankful that we can trust it not only about dragons but about when it says Jesus came and died for our sins because you loved us. We're thankful Lord for the fact that it talks about a judgment where those that trust you can be living in a beautiful place called heaven. We thank you that we could be here today. Watch over us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.